Good morning. Today's reading will be from 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course that so no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not the Lord's sight, but also at the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my, part my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, uh, this instructive section of Scripture. And uh, God, it's uh, uh, just pregnant with application and, and instruction for us today. But God, I pray that we don't miss um, the very truth that compels us and defines us, and that's your grace, your unmerited favor to us, your benevolence to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that you would uh, that we'd make much of you uh, through the proclamation of your word. God, I pray that you would give us grace to be able to receive it and to uh, consider it and to examine it and to ask God, uh, what do you have for each of us here today? So God, I pray that, uh, that you'd be honored and glorified, that we would uh, receive much joy from this passage, and that we'd be compelled to, uh, to extend your grace to others as an uh, active example of our love for you and for other people. We do love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. So I think um, if Sarah was here, I'd give her a golf clap. That was a big section of scripture. I read it last night. And we were going to go through chapter 9, verse 5. That's actually what I prepared for. But we didn't get people home till like 10 o'clock last night, so I figured I would uh, spare you on, on some of that. We cut out some from last night. Um, but I've titled this sermon, um, Overflowing Grace, because it's all about God's grace. Um, it's, it's about His grace to us and how 
his grace is to overflow um, through us and from us to other people. And you, you might have noticed that the sermon title was Overflowing Grace, and then you heard what the passage was, and you felt duped. Like, what does grace have to do with giving, uh, with uh, sacrificial giving? And I, I hope you'll see that Overflowing Grace is the perfect title for today's sermon. Um, this passage has been mispreached. Uh, it's been abused by many uh, TV evangelists, by uh, churches uh, around the world doing uh, capital campaigns. I'm sure that I've mistaught this passage in the past as well. Um, the purpose of this passage is not to manipulate the church into giving into some type of capital program. It's also not a promise that if you give that God is going to um, bless you financially as a result of your giving. Um, God does backfill. Um, we can't outgive God, and we're going to talk about some of those principles. But it doesn't mean that, that he is obligated, just because you give, obligated to give that money back to you. Paul's aim in this passage is the believer's heart, our heart. That's what he is speaking to. Like Jesus, Paul isn't so concerned about the amount of money that we give as he is about the heart of our giving. I'm thankful for this section of Scripture. I'm thankful for um, how the Lord has is, is instructed me this week and as I've wrestled with it. And, um, and what God has to say about giving. The, the world has all kinds of things to say about giving. And there are even curriculums out there made by men that, um, that um, they're about Christian giving that I actually think miss the mark. Um, it misses the mark. Um, Paul's, Paul calls generous giving an act of grace. And this is important, as we'll see, because everything we have, everything we have, Time, talents, money, possessions, our children, our relationships are all a result of God's generous grace. In today's text, Paul boasts about the generosity of a church. He actually holds a church up as an example uh, to the Corinthians on how to give. And I, I couldn't move past that without boasting or bragging about this church, about you actually. Not, not this church, the organization, but this church, the people. And how generous the people have been in this church over the years. Let me just give you a couple examples. Whenever we have needed to, we, we set our church budget in August of every year. Fiscal year starts in September. And every year, as far as I've, I've, every, I've been around every year, so it's been every year we've met the budget. And that is a testimony to God's grace overflowing in the people of Windsor Community Church. If you remember, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, uh, Bob and Gita, our ministry partner in um, Burkina Faso at the time, um, wanted to drill three wells in Burkina Faso for the Falani so that the, these are the people that he was reaching out to, so that the women would not have to carry water um, 10 miles each direction back to the camp while the men sat under the shade tree. And so he needed $22,000 to build three wells. And you know how long it took us to raise that money for you to give that money? A Sunday. And you know how we did it? Through a bloody bake sale. I mean, that was some expensive bread. Uh, but this church gives money. Um, the Czech Republic, we've sent short-term teams over the last five to six years to the Czech Republic. Um, they've been fully funded as a result of God's graciousness through you and your graciousness to this team. Um, last year during the pandemic, we really expected that the economy would get worse than it did. And thank God that it really didn't affect um, a majority of people in northern Colorado. So we, we decided to, uh, as a compassion team, to prepare for that. And we put several requests out to you to say, would you, would you, would you consider giving over and above um, your normal giving and give to the Helping Hand Fund so that when the needs come up, we can meet those needs? And over a matter of weeks, $25,000 um, came in. And so maybe it's just a reminder that that money's there if you know somebody that does have a need. But the point is that this is a church, Windsor Community Church. You are people at some level who understand the priority of Christian giving. Um, we can grow, and I pray that through today's passage, we will grow. The pastors here at Windsor Community Church um, serve on with a, a team of people called the Financial Advisory Team, FAT, for an acronym. 
in, in the, that the fat strives to operate with generosity towards other gospel works around the world. Um, 20% of your giving goes straight um, into the missions account. Um, and 55% of that money goes to church planting. Um, and right now that money is being used for Sheridan Bible Church that we planted back on Labor Day. And then uh, it goes to uh, Redemption Greeley that by God's grace we were able to uh, plant on Easter Sunday. The other 45% of that 20% goes to local and cross-cultural missions. And most of that money goes to uh, Bob and Gita and his wife Mamuna who are now in Niger. And they are, um, they are ministering. Um, with zeal and earnestness, the gospel of Jesus Christ in one of the, the poorest um, countries in the entire planet. While their five kids are separated from them, they've got three young kids in, um, in a boarding school in Jos, Nigeria, where it's safe, and they've got two daughters that are in college. And we support them um, extravagantly because we, um, they're, we, well, let me tell you what extravagantly is about $250 a month. <laughs> pays for their living expenses. And then we, we also have helped them with a projector and a motorcycle um, and um, not only food for themselves, but giving them money so that they can buy food for people who are starving in that area as well. And then we also support Sunday and Blessing in the southwest part of Nigeria, in Akuta, Nigeria, the same way. Um, and, and they also live in poverty. And then we support a woman by the name of Shana who has a ministry to refugees in Fort Morgan, Colorado. And refugees are people who have fled oppression um, and were in much poverty in African countries. And they moved to places like um, sanctuary cities like Greeley and Fort Morgan. And this woman has a ministry in Fort Morgan that, God willing, we're going to hear more about. And we're going to um, hopefully God's going to give us opportunities not only to give money, but to participate in ministry to these people. Um, the point is, is that... Um, that not only are you generous, but that we, we set 20% aside, yes, 20% um, right off the top, actually, um, to give towards missions, to give for the sake of the, God's kingdom. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. But I think there is more glory for God, there's more joy for us, and there's more good for others as we grow in our understanding of generous and sacrificial Christian giving that is motivated by the generous grace of God. So Paul today is not writing to believers in Corinth to encourage them to give more to their local church, but to give more to those in need. So this is not about um, giving to building up the coffers of the local church. However, there are principles that Paul lays out that will inform all of our giving, including giving to the local church. Here's an interesting statistic and, and proof that the church in America needs to hear this. Um, we make today, in 2020, um, the average American makes two times as much in real income as we did in 1960. That we, have, we have twice the amount of spendable income today as we did in 1960. Yet the church gives a third less in real dollars today than, the church, than, than we did in 1960. If you're a Christian, there's great application for us today. And my prayer is that you be compelled by the love and grace of Jesus and that you not receive any condemnation from the enemy. So I've got four points today in this message called Overflowing Grace. If you are a, um, if you are a note taker, this is going to be helpful. Um, if you're not a note taker, this is going to drive you nuts. Um, so point number one, uh, we have an example to emulate in verses one through five. Number two, we have an encouragement to participate, verses six through seven. Number three, we have a truth that motivates, verses 10 and 11. And then number four, we have principles to evaluate in verses 12 through 24. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first three points, and we're going to do a high flyover of verses 12 through 34. And I need to just give a, a little bit of context, a little bit of review. If you remember that Paul had just, before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had just written a severe letter through tears and with much affection for the church in Corinth because he heard that there were false teachers in the, in, that, were, um, that were deceiving the church, there was sin in the camp, and so he wrote a severe letter asking them to repent. And in fact, they did repent. A majority of the church uh, repented, 
And so uh, Paul is now writing to that majority and also to the minority um, that has not repented in uh, in 2 Corinthians. We just finished the first seven chapters. If you haven't noticed, we're in chapter 8 today. And chapters 1 through 7 was a section. And in this section, Paul has been defending himself as an apostle. Because the, the, the so-called super apostles were discrediting his apostleship and they were discrediting his message. So he was defending both his apostleship and the true gospel message. And he was saying that what I've been preaching, what you heard from me and what you believed is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Over the first seven chapters, Paul explained that his ministry is a new covenant ministry. It's a ministry of weakness that shows God's strength. It's a ministry of hope that leads to everlasting life. It's a ministry that is compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. It's a ministry that's carried out for the glory of God and for the good of other people and for the joy of God's, pe of God's people. It's a ministry that teaches that God's grace not only transforms, but it informs the way we live. You see, God's grace is not just to be accepted and that we go live any way we want. That God's grace is to, is to be given to us, to be transformed us from, from old to new, and to inform the way we live. Now in chapters 8 through 9, Paul takes on another topic. He wants to encourage the church to follow through on a commitment that they had apparently made a year earlier to give to poor Christians in Jerusalem. If you want to learn more about that, it's in chapter 16 uh, the first, uh, of 1 Corinthians. It seems as though they were waffling on their commitment. So Paul, uh, in true form, he hits the subject head on. Have you ever noticed that Paul doesn't sugarcoat anything? But he hits it head on, not as a command, even though he has the authority to command them, but he appeals to them. He appeals to the grace of God, that God's unmerited favor would overflow from their lives into a willing, generous, and sacrificial giving to the poor Jews in Jerusalem. And did you know that this type of teaching, to giving to um, the, the needy, if you will, has been part of, uh, part of Paul's M.O. from day one, from the, first, the very first part of his ministry? You remember when Stephen was stoned and all the Christians um, jetted out of Jerusalem, right? They, they, they ran because there was persecution. And the very first church that was formed after them running was a church in Antioch, um, which, was, which was up north. And, um, and the, 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 uh, James and, the other, and Peter and the other brothers that were left behind in Jerusalem started hearing about this church in Antioch, that there were many people coming to Christ. So they wanted to check it out. Many of them were Gentiles. So they wanted to check it out. So they sent Barnabas up there to check it out. And it, in fact, Jesus, God was working. People were being saved. People were, were growing at some level, but they didn't have any leadership. So they sent Barnabas up there to check it out. And then Barnabas, I think probably because he wasn't, Maybe he was ill-equipped to teach them. He went to Tarsus. And who did he find in Tarsus? He found Saul, which was Paul's former name. And he brought Saul back to Antioch. And it says in chapter 11 of Acts that they, that they taught the church for an entire year. And then right after that, in chapter 11, verse 26 of Acts, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you know that up until that point that, that followers of Jesus Christ weren't called Christians? So at that point, at that moment, um, after they taught, were taught for a year, um, the disciples were referred to as Christians. And you know what the first recorded act is of Christians in Acts 11.26? What do you think that might be? It tells us. It says, it says this. It says a prophet named Agabus. There's a, there's a name for you moms to put into your little thing. Agabus. Aggie. Bus, be a big kid, right, Bus? A prophet named Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples, Christians, determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They sent it to the elders of the church in Jerusalem by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. The very first Christian act that's recorded is giving outside the church. It wasn't a capital campaign to build a bigger temple. Not that that's bad, but it was to serve others, to meet the needs of others. In today's passage, we see Paul refer to Christian giving as an act of grace. Not once, but seven different times. And grace is an unconditional benevolence or favor towards us, his children, the apple of his eye. 
And in this case, uh, today, grace is human generosity given by God. Grace today in this passage is human generosity given by God. And why do I say that? It's because humans are not naturally great, uh, generous. We're not. As a result of the fall, we're naturally selfish and greedy. I know I am. I look back at my uh, giving before I was a Christian that I felt like I, I actually gave a lot to different like charities and whatnot, uh, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. When I look back on that, it was all to get something in return. It was to get clients, to get advertising and whatnot. So for us for, uh, to, to give sacrificially and willingly, expecting nothing in return, is not natural for humanity. When Christians are most generous, it's clear evidence that God's grace is working in and through us. One commentator said, human generosity is a visible sign of God's invisible grace. Human generosity is a visible sign of God's invisible grace. So in verses 1 through 5 today, we see an example to emulate. Before Paul appeals to the, Christ, uh, to the Corinthians to, to give, he holds up an example of faithful and generous giving. Not from a wealthy church, but a poor church. A church that didn't give a lot of money. You think that he would pick out a church that maybe gave um, 3 million shekels instead of um, 300 shekels. But he holds out a church that didn't give a large quantity of money, but they did give more than they had. Verse 1 and 2, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is an example of generous giving by a group of people who were suffering extreme poverty. And we're encountering a severe test of affliction. We don't know what the severe test of affliction was for sure, but we don't really need to know. That's not the point. Paul's point is that this is a church that suffered economically and as a result, physically. You know, I just heard a statistic. It really wasn't a statistic. It was more of a narrative that um, it was talking about, like, health in America, how over the pandemic um, that many people have actually gotten healthier. But then they broke it down. And you know why many people have gotten healthier? It's because it's people that have been able to afford buying, um, um, what's that thing? The, like, you get on the bike and people are yelling at you through the screen. Peloton, Yeah. Yeah, so that people are being able to afford that and to buy equipment from Rogue and that type of thing. Yet there's a population that always gets the short stick. That they're the people who got the sickest during the pandemic. And it's the poor people. I want you to notice that, notice this about the church in Macedonia, that in their severe affliction and in their extreme poverty, they had an abundance of joy that overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Severe affliction, excessive poverty, and an abundance of joy? <clears throat> what is up with that? I mean, here in North America, like there's many of you, there's some of you that I know, and I don't want to belittle this, that have experienced great suffering. But for many of us, the, the greatest amount of suffering we've had in the last year is having to wear a mask in the Costco. And because of that, we've lacked joy. That in severe affliction and extreme poverty, they had an abundance of joy that overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I want to be characterized of that. Like, I want this on my gravestone. It's say in parentheses, just kidding. He really wasn't like that, but he aspired to that. So what is joy? Joy is a happiness that is not dependent upon our temporal circumstances, but is dependent upon our eternal standing. Do you know someone who exudes the joy of the Lord, even though they suffer? I know a few people like this. It is so encouraging, so motivating. Paul describes this overflowing wealth of generosity in verses 3 and 4. What does it look like? It says, for they, they gave according to their means. It was small means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Paul didn't ask them to give beyond their means. They said, like, we, they, they gave 
uh, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Giving according to what a person has is a principle for uh, Christian giving, and we're going to break it down a little bit more when we get to verse 12. Giving beyond one's needs is not a requirement of Christian giving. But nonetheless, Paul celebrates it as it reveals the heart of these believers uh, that has been captivated by the grace of God. Jesus also celebrated this type of giving. Listen to it in Mark 12. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums of money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, everything she had to live on. The Macedonians didn't need to be sold by Paul in this humanitarian effort. They didn't simply acquiesce and say, you know, Paul, like you're our leader and we're just going to follow you and do whatever you do. And even though we're not happy about it, like we're part of this this church and we're going to do it. No, in fact, the text tells us that they begged to participate in this offering for the relief of the, the, of the saints. Back when I was in the um, investment business, we would have new offerings. A, a company would go public, and there's only so much stock, and they would allocate it to the different um, financial consultants, and we would all have a bunch of clients, and people would literally beg me to participate in this initial offering. We'd have 50 shares, 100 shares, maybe 500 shares if they're a good client. But what, what these people are doing here is they, they know there will be such a massive kingdom return that they are begging Paul to participate in this offering for the poor Jews, poor Christians in Jerusalem. Don't miss verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Yes, they uh, they had reconciled and they wanted to be in sync with Paul and his ministry. But most importantly, they had given themselves first and fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that he was their provider. Everything they possessed, even their minimal resources, were a gift from God. They gave themselves first and fully to the Lord because he first gave himself fully to them. And they were captivated by his grace. And so that wherever God would lead, they were willing to follow. In fact, they were willing to beg God to bring them along. It's motivating to hear these type of stories. You know, certainly um, 2,000 years ago. Uh, but I've had, I've had the opportunity, and I pray that you get the opportunity as well, to go to um, developing or third world countries. I've been to Nigeria or uh, that, that part of Africa three different times. And when we went the first time, when Nancy and I went the first time, we came back like just wrecked in a, in a good way. Um, just seeing um, the way that those people minister and live for the gospel in um, severe affliction and extreme poverty and see their, um, their joy that just wells up in them is contagious. And we came back like thinking like, man, like we just need to sell our everything and live under a bridge. And we knew that that wasn't the right emotion, um, that thankfulness was, um, but really it's, uh, it, it changed us. And it's a, it's a reason that we all need to engage in some type of ministry um, that, in, that, um, that ministers to those that have less than us. Because it's, it's, it's doing that that makes us understand um, how much we really have. And and the, the, wrong, the wrong emotion, and I've had this emotion, the wrong emotion is guilt. That's not the, that's not the, that's, that's not the correct em, emotion. Because it's God's grace, whatever we have. And the point is, is, is not to um, feel guilty, nor is it to uh, trample upon God's grace, but to let it overflow um, through us and from us. Parents, there's something here for you. Um, we spend a lot of time helping our kids understand their unique wiring. It's one of our primary jobs is to help our kids understand how God has made them fearfully and wonderfully. And we, we help them um, uh, get to the right college so they can have a, the right job and start building their lives so they can start saving and buy a home and retire one day. But do we teach them the primary purpose of making more money? And that's to give more money. 
That's the primary purpose of making more money. What or who are we teaching them to emulate? How about teaching them from an early age? For some of us, for some of you that are, are retired, you can't make some major adjustments, and I understand that. And you're at where you're at, and praise God for that. Whether you're able to give 2% or whether you're able to give 20%, you're on a fixed budget. But how about teaching our kids from an early age that everything that they have, everything that we have is a gift from God? Yeah, Daddy works hard. Yeah, we've been smart with our money, but it, but he can still take it all away. It's all from him. And to teach our kids to set a percentage of their money aside, even their birthday money, that's all from him. Get $50 from Grandma, $5 of that goes in the giving box at church or gets sent to Nigeria or whatever, whatever, however the Lord leads you. In verses 6 through 7, Paul turns his attention to encouraging the wealthier Corinthian churches to follow the example of the Macedonian church. Now, if they can do that, imagine how the Lord can use our generous giving. He encourages them now to follow through in this act of grace that they had agreed to, an encouragement to participate. When Titus delivered Paul's severe letter, he reminded the Corinthians, apparently, of the offering that they had pledged and the reminder that Paul would soon be there to collect it. So Paul encourages them in verse 7 that as you excel in faith, I love it how Paul, um, it's a sandwich principle, it's a good principle to use with our kids and with our spouses, is that if you've got something like hard to say to somebody, like um, there's always something to affirm them on. Like, like affirm them, affirm them. Like you do this really good, um, you suck at this, then you do this really good. I'm not really good at it because what I really emphasize is the middle one too much. As you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. What grace is he talking about? The grace of generous and sacrificial giving. And here's what's interesting. Excel is the same verb used in chapter 8, verse 2, to describe how the impoverished Macedonians overflowed in their wealth of generosity. Paul affirms the Corinthians in their excelling in faith or overflowing in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness. And he also sarcastically affirms them that they excel in, being, in accepting Paul's love from him. Yet he says he's not, that it's not enough. It's not enough that you excel in these gifts. He says, but see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. And this act of grace, giving, is rooted in love. Excelling in gifts of faith and speech and knowledge are good, but the greatest of these that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is what? It's love. It's love, and that brings us to our third point in verses uh, 8 through 11. Actually, I think it's 8 through 16. No, it's 8 through 11. A truth to motivate. I say this not as a command, but to prove by your earnestness of others, by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. How do we know if our love is genuine? Words are cheap. Love is active. John said this in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love. Isn't this interesting? It's the same address as John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Just, just notice that. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This act of grace requires love for God and love for others. It's a love that sacrifices preferences and comfort and building our own kingdom in order to give generously and sacrificially for God's glory, our joy, and the good of others. Giving is an act of love that overflows from God's people who are soaked by God's grace. You want to give more? Gaze more at the cross of Christ. Understand that things, everything you have is a gift from Him, including our salvation, including all the good gifts He's given us on top of that. Paul reminds us of God's active love poured out for humanity in this amazing verse. Verse 9, for you know, believer, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This isn't referring to Jesus not having a place to lay his head or being homeless. Jesus did live a life that was not lavish on this earth for 33 years. It was it had some level of poverty. It's a reminder that Jesus emptied himself of all his heavenly rights, laying down his life, bearing our sins so that we could have life in Christ and to live lives yielded to him and to his purposes. He said something similar back a couple chapters ago in chapter 5, verse 15. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Understanding the benefit of God's grace is a good place to start. That, that the benefit is, is that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we've been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we'll never taste his wrath. But we forget the call that God's grace has on our life. And it's a call to live a life for the glory of God and for the good of others sacrificing our own preferences. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, who gave up all for Christ in this ministry, said this. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, is anything too great for me to give to him? The gift of the gospel creates an obligation of gratitude that overflows to others. In verses 10 through 11, for the second time, Paul encourages them to complete the act of grace. Complete it. You, you committed to it, now complete it. He uses helpful language for us today as we consider how to be generous and sacrificial givers. The Corinthians started this process a year earlier by determining to set aside money or put into their budget, if you will, a gift for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And what Paul knows is that even if something's in our budget, there's always competition uh, with other line items on our budget. Is anybody else a budget geek like me? few of you are. If you're not, you should be. There's real competition in our budget from things like unexpected bills. And there's other competition from fleshly things like building bigger and more, more secure empires at the expense of serving other people. So he writes in verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness or your eagerness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. He's saying complete it. You set it aside. You budgeted for it. Complete it. Give it. And then Paul drops in a little bonus motivation in verse 10. He says this act of grace benefits you. Not in the way that the TV evangelists would want you to think that it benefits you. Like just 1-800-BUY-ME-A-JET. Um, like just like you give to the, the God does not promise that when you give sacrificially um, and generously that He is going to replace that money. Oftentimes He does, but what benefits us is exceeding joy, satisfaction, and humility that God, in His kindness, would use us and the resources that He's given us to bring Him glory. And to bring us more joy and to expand his kingdom. So after Paul has given us an example to emulate, an encouragement to participate in a truth to, that motivates, he now gives us principles to evaluate. And this is going to be this last section of scripture in uh, verses 12 to 24. And the most obvious next question is, how much should I give? Isn't that the million dollar question? How much should I give? When is enough enough? It's a good question, but I think a better question to ask is, how much should I keep? If it's all from him, how much should I keep? And for you note-takers, under this last point, principles to evaluate, I've got four sub-points. Give according to what you have, number one. Verse 12, if, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what a person does not have. The principle here is to give in pr proportion to what you've been given. The Old Testament tithe was 10%. If you had all the taxes and all that, it was 23%, but 10% was what was to be given to the temple. And I'm sure that this was actually freeing because they never had to think, well, how much should I give? It was a law. It was a command. I, I love Yahweh. I give 
The New Testament does not command a certain amount to give. And I praise God that our salvation and our standing in God's kingdom is not dependent upon how much we give. His love for us does not wane based on how much you give. With that said, we're called to give generously and sacrificially in response to God's grace because everything we have is by His grace. Let me suggest a principle that might inform um, the amount of giving, the amount of your giving. If Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and part of His law was a 10% tithe, and on this side of the cross, we've tasted His grace and love through the cross of Christ, doesn't it seem like 10% would be a starting place for the New Testament Christian? Why would we receive, why would we give less when we received so much more? The second subpoint is fair giving isn't equal giving. Verses 13 through 15, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. He's speaking to the richer church, which we are in northern Colorado in comparison to the world. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. That verse uh, 15 is from um, uh, somewhere in Exodus. I didn't write down the address. The church in Corinth will most likely give much more than the church in Macedonia based on their comparative wealth. Paul doesn't want them to be burdened. And he doesn't want the poor churches to be eased into thinking that the Corinthian church will carry it. Equal giving is not fair giving. Proportional giving is what God calls us to. And I think this is why the Old Testament tithe is rather helpful. It's not commanded, but it's helpful. The law was for all people to give 10% rather than a dollar amount. What if the law was like, like all, all followers of Yahweh give a thousand denarii. It would exasperate the poor, the poor followers of Yahweh who didn't have a thousand denarii. And it would let the richer ones off the hook because there would be no sacrifice. The purpose of generous giving is not to create equality in the way of communism, but to give on the basis of equity so that each has enough it doesn't mean that some can't have more. But when we do have more, we give to those who have less. And the third subpoint is that living is for giving. And I'm going to get super practical here. Life is expensive, especially in northern Colorado. And there's expenses for temporal comforts that compete with generous and sacrificial giving. So can, can consider how much you really need to keep. Let me tell you how we have thought through it in our family. And I, I hold this up there as, uh, as an example to consider. It's not thus saith the Lord, but I think the principles line up with God's word. Historically, Nancy and I have gotten away for two nights um, during the year. We haven't done this in several years because our budget hasn't changed. Not a lot has changed. But every year we would go away. We'd get a sitter for the kids. We'd go away for two nights to pray and to plan on how God would, how we would uh, invest our resources that he has graciously given us. And um, we, and from, from the, the day we started this, we started at a very minimum. Uh, the, the, first, the very first line item was 10% to the local church. That's where we started. And over the years, we've gotten to a point where it's, it's now 15% to the local church. I know that sounds weird. The local church pays me. Like, why are you giving money back that the church has given you? Because it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue for me. So number one, 15% uh, the local church. Then, necessary living expenses, housing, food, cell phone, transportation. Necessary. After that, number three, as before some you might be thinking, what's number three? Um, it's a giving fund, actually. Like, when an opportunity arises, when the Lord providentially puts somebody in your life, like a David and Nicole Morgan, for example, or this refugee ministry that, that might have pricked your heart earlier that you want to check out and maybe get... If you don't set money aside and you're on a fixed budget, where are you going to pull that money from? 
So, so we actually have a monthly dollar amount that we put into what we call a surprise giving fund. And you know one of the, the great blessings of that, that fund in the last month, starting June 1st for us, is we started supporting David and Nicole Morgan on a fixed income because we plan to put that money aside not knowing for sure what the Lord would do for us. Percentage of local church, necessary giving expenses, and then consider some type of a giving fund or whatever you call it. After that, for us, it's an emergency fund. We drive used cars that break down. We, uh, things break down around the house. Uh, I'm starting to break down. Emergency fund. And after the emergency fund, unashamedly, vacation and entertainment. <laughs> we need rest. You need rest. And if you're burnout, if you're tired, and you haven't taken a vacation in X amount of time, and you don't have money for it, plan for it. Vacation entertainment. And the last one on our list is retirement. We do save for retirement. We've got a little bit of money going into a 401k plan. But I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to move retirement all the way up there because ultimately God's going God's to take, take care of us. In the last few months, we've been in our house for 13 years. It's a two-story house. We thought we would move into a ranch home. We would buy a ranch-style house. We're pretty mobile right now. We're, by God's grace, we're, we're very capable um, health-wise. We just thought, you know, let's, let's look at a ranch that we could live in for the next 20 or 30 years. We found a house. We found a lot. We met with the builder. And about 10 minutes into that meeting, um, surprise, it was like $60,000 more because of the lot and all that stuff. We're like, are you kidding me? And like we had like, you know, it's like, like a bait and switch. And, um, but, but it was an easy decision for us. We said no. You know why? Because it would have increased our mortgage. Hey, trust me. We would have done it in a heartbeat $60,000 more if it would not have affected our budget. Um, but it would have, we would have had to reduce our giving. No bueno. It was an easy decision for us. Paul encouraged the Corinthians to finish what they planned a year ago, which infers that they planned something. This assumes that they prayerfully budgeted giving earmarked for the church in Jerusalem. It's helpful to plan out our giving as a constant reminder, if nothing else, that we're recipients of God's grace as we look at those line items. We can give and share with others and still have enough, but humans never seem to think that we have enough. Proof of that is that we work our entire lives in order to retire and check out. And how do we know when it's time to retire? We say that we have enough. We have all we need. But I want to tell you, we never have all we need when we live to give. We should make money at some level to give it away. We're not going to take anything with us. That's the meaning of the verse in Matthew 6, to lay up our treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. The last point in verses 16 through 23 is monitor your giving. Plan for it. Follow through on it. Monitor it. And we're not going to go into much detail, but, um, but give to and through the local church. Give to and through the local church. It's all over Scripture. If you even look at this, chapter 9, it's they're giving, them, they're giving the money to Paul and Titus and other leaders in the church to give to the local church to distribute to the poor Jewish Christians. Next is given the context of relationship. Know who you're given to. Know the people that are responsible for, for collecting the money and giving the money. Paul is sending Titus and two other men that the church knows. Have some kind of relationship with the, with the recipient. Know their need. Don't just send money without knowing how they're going to use that money. Make sure that the giving uh, of the people receiving it and distributing it are above reproach, that they have a strategy that it's not going to be skimmed off the top, that there's not uh, too much money, uh, too much going to administration. And then last, the people you give it to, make sure there's accountability without control. That's key, accountability without control. So as we close up here, this sermon has been about overflowing grace. More than giving, it's about understanding God's grace. That everything we have is a gift. It's His benevolence, unmerited favor to us. 
and consider examples to emulate. Give your kids examples to emulate. Be encouraged to participate in what God's doing. He's going to build his kingdom, right? The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus will build his church with or without us and our money. But we have the great privilege to participate. The third point, remember the truth that motivates, that Jesus gave it all for us. And then consider the principles to evaluate. Give for God's glory, for your joy, and for the good of other people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing grace. God, thank you for um, truth after truth after truth of who you are and who we were left to ourselves. that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, by your mercy, gave us new hearts, gave us a new identity, gave us new hope. gave us new relationships. And God, I thank you. Father, I thank you that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. That every gift, that every, everything that we can think in our minds right now about, all the amazing relationships you've given us, spouses, parents, kids, neighbors, friends, church family, God, it's all by your grace. Lord, we live in an affluent, one of the most affluent areas of the world. And we can thank you for that uh, because we don't have to worry. Most of us don't have to worry about being homeless or without food, without water. God, so, God, I pray that we would not take it for granted, any of it. And, God, we pray that we would be conduits of your grace that we would be like um, a reservoir where the water comes in, the water of your grace comes in, and then it flows out to others for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of others. We love you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.